0: We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Big Ben Strong is on the board. Wild Willers getting booking the guests. In the legendary C.H.M.L. newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson.
0: It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Lots going on, lots to talk about today. And, you know, and and in. And... <laughs> oh, look, there he goes, Martha. He's going to wind it up again. Uh, yeah. So anyway, um, I think what people find really frustrating about um, uh, the current government uh, that'd be the federal government and uh, yeah, the head pop star there, JT. Um, I think what really, really uh, uh, frustrates people is he sort of, number one, ignores what anybody else says who doesn't think like him. And and if you have information otherwise or what have you, he, he just kind of blows it off. And too many times we have seen... Uh, situations where he knew ahead of time and then he just did nothing or and then reacts afterwards, you know, sort of lets a crisis happen or or pulls the reins and, you know, uh, setting the situation, uh, certainly not helping it and then coming in with a solution. And, you know, we've seen it time and time and time again. And we have again with housing. And, you know, we talked about last week, the uh, immigration department two years ago said to this prime minister, who by the way, and uh, 900,000 students last year. 900,000. That doesn't include immigration. 900,000. And then but the year before that was like 800,000. So, you know, he was told two years ago by the immigration department. Uh, the immigration minister, by the way, is now the housing minister. <laughs> Uh, didn't listen to him then. We're going to listen to him now. Uh, so they told him two years ago, like, you know, this is going to, you're going to create inflation because you're putting too much pressure on the services. You're going to fuel the, the health care and the housing crisis. And and there's no payoff for this. There's nothing. It's going to happen. And, of course, everybody, he ignores it. Just like he ignores any advice that comes to him and ends up, you know, shooting, shooting himself in the foot. So, uh, you know, we find out a a couple of weeks ago that, you know, he's known about this. It's his own people that are telling him this. He just promoted the immigration minister to housing. Like, come on. So now here we go. And so now you create a problem. So we're going to speed up housing, which is basically using uh, everything that all the opposition parties have been saying forever about housing. And now it's, oh, guess what? We're going to cap. And this started. Last week, with the current immigration minister saying, "You know what? I think we're going to look at. Uh, I think we're going to look at, spend some time and look at the uh, you know look at the, uh, the the cap on the students." And it's like, "Well, you already told to, you were told two years ago." Well, you know, uh, and then by the weekend, we got a cap. It's amazing how you go from we're going to talk about it to we get a cap. And, and and once again, here is the prime minister showing up to a house fire with a fire extinguisher after the place is already burnt to the ground and says, here you go, here's how we fix this. Again, 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 another self-inflicted problem. Self-inflicted because we don't prepare. We don't listen to those around us. And now all of a sudden we have a cap, like, you know, was suggested two years ago, about a million point eight students ago. And here we have today, oh, a cap, 35%. Going to reduce it 35% for two years because it's killing housing. It's flooding our emergency departments. It's overstressing our healthcare system again, like COVID did. And he doesn't listen to his own people. But there's a cabinet retreat going on right now in Montreal. <laughs> so Lord knows what else they're going to steal out of the opposition's uh, shopping basket before they get to the checkout. But, you know, honestly, it, it's like the same thing over and over and over again like he it's like he doesn't have the capacity he doesn't get it he's his mom not his dad it's as simple as that you know the walmart greeter no matter how great they may and 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 charismatic at the front of the store doesn't mean they can run the place And that's what we have here. One mistake after another and a hollowed out government that just, you know, uh, yeah, let's do that. No, 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 everybody's screaming about this. So let's do this. No, everybody's screaming about that. So let's do that. Two or three beats behind everybody else. And it's amazing. And now we've got a cap. All right, way to go. All right, there you go. Here's your fire extinguisher. It's amazing the uh, amount of students that have come in in the last little while. And, you know, the issue is not necessarily just immigration. It can be temporary workers, and international students as well. Um, Reports coming out today, the last year, 2023, 900,000 international students came to this country. 900,000. That doesn't include uh immigration and all the rest, so it's just astounding how we have got here and again, a couple of weeks ago we were talking about if the government knew that these numbers were too high by their own people that this would fuel inflation this would this would put more pressure on the housing and health care crisis and and yet today, guess what we've got a cap. Uh, and they're gonna reduce, uh, reduction, or they're gonna reduce levels from 2023 by 35%. Let's bring in Cassandra uh, Cassandra Fultz, regulated Canadian immigration consultant and a founder of Doherty Fultz Immigration Consultants, and is here now. Cassandra, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
2: My pleasure. Thank you, Scott.
0: It really this is bizarre because it seems we don't understand to stop throwing stones until after a window has been broken here. What are your thoughts of this announcement? Why now?
2: Why now? Well, uh, further to our conversation last week, uh, they are desperate. The current government is desperate to curb the exodus of voters uh, from, from the Liberal Party, honestly. This is a, you know, sort of a, a, a knee-jerk reaction to a, a sense of discontent with the system that has realistically been building for years, and now all of a sudden it's a problem. People have been, been upset about this for years, and now today it's a problem.
0: It's interesting because we're getting last year's numbers and they're as high as 900,000. And even the year before that, it was like 800,000.
2: This is true. So so that includes that number of 900,000. That includes the number of students who are already in Canada, as well as the number of new study permits that were issued. So that's about 300,000 who are already here and close to 600 who, uh, who were new in 2023. And then now they want to reduce that number to around 360,000 uh, new people per year as international students, so down from 579,000 to around 360,000.
0: Are you surprised this happened so quickly, Cassandra? Because it, uh, like as early as Friday or late as Friday or Thursday of last week, the minister was saying, "Yeah, you know, we might uh, start to look at that," and then boom, over the weekend, it's happened.
2: No, I'm not surprised at all. I'm sure that the minister really had a difficult weekend. I'm sure he's been uh, ridden over roughshod over the past few weeks by uh, by the PM and the Liberal Party leadership because people are big mad about this. And this is something they can actually do. They have immediate control over how many yeah. study permits can be issued. And I think that this is a, a very um, a strong attempt to try and return voters to the fold when the time comes.
0: It's a self-inflicted wound.
2: Oh, absolutely. Listen, they did this. They did this to themselves. They did this to all of us. And it's it was amusing, I have to say, in a, in a dark, macabre sort of way uh, to mm. hear the current minister and the former minister, Sean Fraser, of course, who is now the housing minister, talk about, uh, yeah, things have sort of gotten out of control. Well, gee, how did that happen? I can't imagine.
0: A uh, two-year cap, it's temporary, and 35% reduction, is that enough? How does that, what kind of an impact does that make?
2: I think it makes an immediate impact. So the cap is going to be distributed across the country. However, each province will have its own individual cap. So you're going to see the provinces with the highest populations see the deepest cuts in the number of students. So I think this is this is bound to have a net positive impact on housing, on housing availability, on housing costs, where we need it most, which is of course in the provinces of Ontario and BC, which are the most populated. So I think there's gonna be an immediate positive impact there. And then I think what you'll also see is uh, people changing where they're headed. Somebody who might've just automatically sort of defaulted to an Ontario school might take a look at Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, because they couldn't get in under the cap in Ontario or BC.
0: And with Ontario, it's as high as 50% reduction. Is that accurate?
2: Yep, that's accurate.
0: So uh, what happens after two years? I mean, clearly this has gotten out of hand. And finally, um, you know, the rubbers hit the road. Everybody's realized what's going on. How do you fix this moving forward? How do you learn from this mistake?
2: Well, after two years, we will revisit. But the thing is, they can revisit any time. Hopefully. Whoever uh, whoever is in charge, of course, you you know how it is in a ballgame where they just keep making call after call to the bullpen. Uh, Mark mm-hmm. Miller is like the fifth or sixth immigration minister from this yeah. government. So it's not a good sign. It's not a sign of confidence. So who knows how long he might actually be around. Whoever is in charge over the next couple of years, hopefully they're actually keeping a finger on the pulse of what is happening on an ongoing basis. How are people being impacted by their policies? on an ongoing basis, not, oh my gosh, out of nowhere, we have a problem. Because the problem didn't just crop up out of nowhere. The problem hmm. has been growing for years.
0: Uh, what's the downside to this, Cassandra? Some, it's, it sounds obviously it's a good idea, but who who will pay for this in some form?
2: This is a good question. Uh, one, of, you know, one of the downsides to this is are students who are studying at the undergraduate level may choose Canada uh, for, you know, for their destination. And the reason is right now, or prior to today, if you, uh, if you were studying at the post-secondary level, meaning if you were studying like for uh, a bachelor's degree or a master's or a PhD, then you could actually bring your dependents. You could bring your wife, you could bring your husband, you could bring your kids so that your whole family could come while you were in school. If you decided to pursue a four-year degree, you weren't just isolated in Canada while your family is, you know, thousands of miles away. And this is not going to be the case going forward for undergraduate degrees. So if you're getting a bachelor's degree, you're on your own. Your wife's not coming. Your kids are not coming unless they apply for something uh, completely different on their own. They will no longer be able to come to Canada with you as dependent. So you know that might really change the way uh, people, Spend their money. Where do they Where do they spend their dollars in terms of uh, of post post secondary education as an international student? If the United States will let you bring your wife, you might you might rather consider that than if Canada will not.
0: Cassandra Fultz with us, regulated Canadian immigration consultant, founder of Doherty uh, Fultz Immigration Consultants. Cassandra, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
2: Pleasure's mine. Thank you so much. <laughs>
0: The prime minister and his federal cabinet are on a retreat, uh, started uh, yesterday in Montreal uh, for a couple of days to gear up for 2024. And what will be different? What will they do this year? Let's bring in Peter Gray, a professor of political science, McMaster University. And here now, Peter, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thanks. Hope you're well, too. <laughs> So, Peter, what do you think uh, is going to be front and center at this uh, at this cabinet retreat? Uh, change course, freshen up, double down. What do you think? What do you think we're going to see out of this?
3: Uh, I think there's a government that's aware that they really have been getting uh, you know their their lunch money stolen for a year now, and uh, I think really the emphasis is going to be on how do they connect with Canadians. Uh, in terms of making the case that they're responding to Canadians' interests and that they have a plan going into the next election. You know, having said that, uh, you know, a lot of the discussion around uh, the retreat is much more about broad themes, you know, about how do you respond to the middle class or how do you communicate better? It's it's less clear what the specific, uh, you know, deliverables, the deliverables will be in terms of uh, what actual uh projects are they going to bring forward in their budget this spring that that respond to you know that need to connect with canadians
0: they talk uh, about the middle class as if it's some sort of group uh some sort in in the end it's pretty much the majority of the population why is it so difficult for them to connect with everybody else or or what is their kitchen table issues per se
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, you have to think that part of it is uh, the issue that's facing, you know, so many of our governments in Canada and our parties, in that they uh, really treat us in elections as people who are choosing between, you know, food basics and no frills, uh, you know, who can offer us the slightly better deals on the things that matter to us in those days. And, you know, uh, week to week, uh, you know, you may be outflyered by the other one in terms of the the specials they have, as opposed to, (laughs) you know, coming up with a a vision where they say, well, here's actually the real challenges. Uh, You know, the economy is not going well. How are your kids going to, you know, find work that pays them, uh, you know, uh, good salaries through their lives? Uh, How are you going to, you know, have housing so that kids can actually move out of the home? Uh, and a whole series of, of issues, uh, you know, we might expect a bit more vision, but, you know, so much of our governments are keep, you know, coming back to this idea that they really have to look after is affordability and what are these small things they can do to make our lives better. And, you know, sometimes you connect with that, but other times, you know, you get outbid uh, and none of that really captures people's imagination around the big questions they're facing. Uh,
0: The last retreat, um, uh, sort of begrudgingly, they admitted that there or acknowledged there was a a housing crisis, but didn't really do anything about it uh, as far as policy uh, until later on. What's different now?
3: I don't think much is different now, actually. I mean, in some ways, the situation is harder because uh, as interest rates have gone up, the private sector has stopped building housing at the same rate it was before because they're not. Confident that Canadians are going to be buying things at the same price uh, if they're paying mortgages with higher interest rates, and the developers themselves have to pay uh, higher uh, in uh, higher interest on the money they're borrowing when they start these projects. Um, So you know, if anything, if one wants to do much around housing, the government has to take a much more involved role, probably a much more expensive one. And I don't think, from the point of view of this federal government, but also our provincial governments, uh, when we look across the country, that there's A lot of appetite for that. So there's a recognition, there's a problem. They realize it's important for uh, Canadians, but the kinds of solutions that might uh, make a difference at this stage, uh, uh, you know, are mostly out of their reach. I guess one exception has been uh, the the words we've been hearing over the past week that the government may be changing its its visa system for international students. Uh, I think a lot of that is signaling, uh, specifically on the housing issue, that they're trying to reduce some of the pressure on it. but again, you know there aren't there aren't a lot of similar files where just some regulatory changes. I mean, and, and those aren't just small ones. I mean, they'll have a huge impact, say, on the college system in Ontario. Um, but uh, there aren't too many which you can do like that without uh, having larger budgetary implications.
0: And, uh, announced today that in fact they are reducing and capping, uh, reducing, uh, international students by 35% for the next two years. That's temporary. So th- there you go right there. Um, but again, have been told a couple of years ago that this was getting out of hand, didn't really, uh, pay attention to that. It seems, and, and, and tell me if I'm being too, too strong here, but it seems that the, the, the federal government, the liberals are, are, are just showing up to the fire after the house is burnt to the ground with like a bucket of water here. um, They just seem to be late to everything on this.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, in in fairness to them and, uh, you know, a bunch of our provincial governments, I think as well, uh, uh, the situation turned pretty quickly there. Right, For a long time, they were, I think, benefiting from what was happening in the the housing market and particularly, uh, you know, among Canadians who owned homes who were pleased to see their housing prices go up uh and so they were quite willing to stand by as as those prices boomed uh, you know it's only i think in the past two to three years where you know the real question of not just of rental affordability but also you know the inability of really kids to live anywhere <laughs> except in their parents own basements uh you know it's become a real a real issue and the the the, the way in which the the housing system uh, is really broken not just in toronto and vancouver but really across the country so yeah, I think you're right. Uh, governments uh, are late arriving. Uh, for the most part, they're not willing to spend the money that might be required for a more uh, you know, significant uh, approach to dealing with uh, building much more housing quickly. Uh, but I think part of it too is that for the longest time, they saw themselves on the side of the homeowners who were reaping these large capital gains uh, on the homes that they owned. I don't know. I
0: think there's more influence from a a a culture of building is bad as opposed to don't build anymore cuz I want mine to go up. I, I you know, at the end of the day the population continues to increase. We've got to build. Uh what about what what about pressure for the prime minister to step down? Will that will that happen at all this in at this retreat?
3: I think it would be a bit unlikely. Uh you know, again, I'm not in that room. Uh but people who are around there are saying that In the ranks of the Liberal caucus, uh, there's a lot more happiness with the Prime Minister than there was uh, six or 12 months ago. Uh, They have a sense that, uh, you know, while they've gone down quite considerably in in Canadians' opinions that the the fall has kind of ended and that Canadians are a bit willing to listen to them again. So in that context, uh, you know, we're not really seeing a lot of calls for the Prime Minister to step down. Or is there a lot of evidence of jockeying uh, from people who would be uh, hoping to replace him in short order, uh, you know, trying to foment some division? So, uh, you know, the polls, I think, are showing that Canadians are not particularly happy with the prime minister. There might be a lot of reasons for him to leave on on that front, as well as the kind of the inability of his government, yeah, as you say, to, to show up on time. They're kind of showing up late. Uh, Uh, But having said that, within the Liberal Party, I I guess they don't feel like they have a a successor, uh, you know, in the wings who could take over and uh, improve the party's standing with Canadians. Peter
0: Grape with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, talking about the politics of the day. Peter, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. And you too. We certainly remember uh, what happened in the protesters that have started uh, in regard to uh, the the war, the conflict between Hamas and Israel, and in the events that have happened in the last several weeks and such. We've seen pro Palestinian protests uh, develop in various parts of uh, Canada and such, and we remember seeing just before Christmas a situation where shoppers were uh, were harassed as as uh, a, a protest group came through the mall, uh, started harassing people, uh, threat- threatening people, um, you know, shoving over decorations or, or, you know, that sort of thing in the mall displays, and and, and actually going face to face with Metro Toronto police officers, including one person that's, that made reference to putting somebody six feet under. Uh, well, the good news is is that police have made a couple of, of, of arrests. Just because you're not arrested immediately doesn't doesn't mean you won't be eventually especially with the technologic uh the technology that exists to today let's bring in Joe Warmington columnist with the Toronto Sun who's been following this story Joe thanks for the time hope you're well
4: Yeah it's good to be with you Scott it's uh, you know it's obviously a very difficult four or five months here and this is one of the stories locally that really captured a lot of people's attention because of being caught on video uh put out there by Israel now but they you know, we saw right away what the guy said about the, you know, six feet deep will put you six feet deep. And it was, it was kind of crazy. And, and, you know, they never really arrested anybody there. And then they turned around, the police arrested a woman, a Jewish woman, like a grandmother type on that was on the bridge. So there was a lot of consternation about that, you know, almost like, like almost like the war was right here. So this was a very, very major arrest for Toronto police and good on them for, you know, seeing it through and, and getting those two people that were allegedly involved with blocking the Zara store and some of the allegations with threats and assaults and stuff that they, they you know, they, they came to a, got, you know, they got them into custody
0: uh and, and that video and we all remember that prior to christmas uh during the christmas rush and such I, that was over the line for a lot of canadians i mean protesting is protesting but this 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 shouldn't have been uh yeah, this shouldn't have happened and j-
4: look it's, it's, the police have been taxed i mean they, they've they been out almost every day doing it and they can't win you know and and you yeah. know i've you know, we've all kind of put pressure on them and that's our job to do that but you know, we have to give them a pat on the back too when they deserve it. Now, I look at I, I think people should calm down out there. I mean, uh, enough is enough in terms of all the protests and stuff. I mean, certainly, when you're blocking people getting into a store or you're going after a Jewish business, you're you're no longer protesting. Now you're into an area that you know that's gross and that it, it's not Canadian. And I think that's that this these arrests kind of hammer home that point, Scott. You know that people realize. You know, you, there's, there's nothing wrong with protesting up at, at you know, City Hall or at Parliament Hill or Queen's Park, that kind of thing. Or even if you want to go outside of an embassy, I don't like that as much. But I, I think it's, as long as you're on the public sidewalk, it's fine. But when you start going after people's businesses or them personally, now you're to the, the, hate, the hate area. And that's what the, uh, you know, the Toronto Police, the hate crimes unit is, I think it's 40 strong now. So they're busy.
0: Do you think the tone has changed since all this went down?
4: I do. I think the police have, you know, like like the leadership and, you know, I don't want to always be picking on the leaders, but, you know, they could have easily said, like, we can't have this, you know, whether it's the mayor or the prime minister, the premier, but they kind of let it go because they're worried about the votes and different things. But they're misreading it, Scott, because, you know, nobody wants to see anybody hurt and there's no religious part of this Hamas thing. This was just a horrible, you know, one of these things that will go down in history, and it's an anomaly, and there's nobody that should be supporting it. I mean, I don't think very many people do, but I think that it gets kind of, like, conflated with the overall issue, and, you know, I do, to your point, though, I do think it is kind of calming down, because I think people are seeing that, you know, there's a lot, people have a lot more in common than they, you know, what they have in common is humanity, and we've got to find a way to get along. anyway. I probably, sometimes I get accused of trying to be too optimistic, but I think you have to be. You can't just be negative all the time.
0: Well said. Joe Warrington, with us. You can read his latest in the Toronto Sun. uh, Arrest finally made in that uh, Eaton Centre altercation way back before Christmas. Joe, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. All the best. Thank you, Scott. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve
5: into the issue until he is.
0: You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk 900 CHML. Ron DeSantis has dropped out of the race for Republican presidential candidate and endorsed Donald Trump, leaving uh, just Nikki Haley to take on Trump. Brian J. Cram with us now, journalist, author, White House correspondent for Playboy, and political analyst for CNN. And here now, Brian, thank you for the time. Hope you're well.
1: I'm doing well. How are you doing in this weather? Is it bad up there as it is down here?
0: (laughs) Well, it's just kind of gray. No, I don't think it's as bad as it is there. Um, So do you still think that Donald Trump will not make it to the White House because of his legal problems? I
1: I, I don't. I don't think I still think I'm laughing. I mean, I love uh, DeSantis, you know, the guy who claimed he was a fighter, quit fighting. The guy who railed against kissing the ring, kiss the ring. I mean, this is typical of the Republican Party. I can't wait to like mid, after they think it's settled, right? After the, you know, you've never seen a presidential race settled this early. And it's just not, it doesn't, it does, it's not conducive to an easy transition for Donald Trump. There's all that oxygen in the room. And after the uh, New Hampshire primary or South Carolina, Trump could be the the guy, right? So they're, they'll nominate <clears> him. <throat> then what happens in, I don't know, May, June, July, before the uh, uh, Republican ha- the Republicans have their convention and he's in jail. So who are they going to get then? So I, I'm, this is all independent of what I think will happen to Donald Trump. I think he's still uh, destined to spend the rest of his life behind bars. And the uh, Republican Party will be scrambling to find a nominee probably sometime around July
0: uh surprise that Desantis is out because i mean he was he was the big gun at one point
1: i mean he crossed mickey mouse that's that never goes down well (laughs) (laughs) so
0: what happened to him like that like what happened there because again like you out of the two of them you thought nikki uh nikki haley would be going down not him
1: i'm not touching that line i'm a gentleman but, uh, that's, <laughs> I'll say that with, with, with,
0: Ron you know, DeSantis. I love that right across the plate. I didn't even see it,
1: man. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's,
0: anyway. Thank, thank you for not easy. swinging it. Thank you for not swinging at that one, Brian. Uh,
1: <laughs> so
0: let you continue on, uh,
1: but I I'll say that with Ron DeSantis, a guy who, uh, is that he he's even, he's less appealing than Donald Trump and less intelligent. If you can imagine so, uh, he, he's perfect for Florida, but he's not, he doesn't translate well across, uh, you know, a national audience. And so I anticipated he was trying to run in the same lane as Donald Trump and Donald Trump has the you know, he's large and, uh, obtuse and he's got that lane, you know, locked down pretty good. There was no way that Ron DeSantis was going to deceive him there. Um, so it, him coming out and, uh, swearing that Donald Trump is, you know, he's now a legion to Donald Trump. Maybe he wants to uh be the next VP uh candidate, but it's not going to be him.
0: Uh so there's no way that uh Nikki Haley can be the uh the sleeper horse here and just come out and and surprise everybody and and even take out Trump.
1: Well, she could, but I the the polling doesn't support it yet. Look, we still haven't had a vote. We you know, the caucuses are not a, a vote, a primary vote. Yeah, the yeah, first yeah. primary votes are going to be in New Hampshire. What I will be surprised to see is if she drops out, that someone else won't come in. Um, I don't see that Donald Trump. if Donald Trump gets a clear lane to the nomination in the Republican Party, it does not bode well for the Republican Party because there's been no one to effectively check him and he has he has no better angels he only has the darker angels and it's only going to get worse and darker the more he gets involved in court proceedings which is going to be how he's going to spend his spring and early summer so if he hasn't gone completely nuts or or you know demented and showing his signs of dementia by July he may well be in prison by then it's not this it, it, this it just doesn't go down easy i think for Uh, uh, for the American electorate or for Republicans specifically. So you think this is just the opening act for this show, really? Oh, yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's we're not even into February yet. We've got 11 months (laughs) before we get to the point where they're going to cast a vote. I mean, well, 10 months. So it's for anyone to say it's over yet. You know, uh, it ain't over till it's over, as as, you know. (laughs) as the as the uh, yogi Berra once said and it ain't over till the fat lady sings or in this case the fat guy in orange hair and he ain't going to be able to sing <laughs> okay
0: so say something happens to him and the Republicans find themselves without a candidate what's the process then will it will it will it just revert back to DeSantis and Nikki Haley or will this go in a completely different direction
1: depends on when and how if someone else comes up they're there still are a couple other minor candidates in the Republican Party that are still out there, uh, so the process will continue. But at some point in time, you would imagine that the GOP would meet behind closed doors—you know, those famous, you know, smoke-filled rooms that are now filled with, you know, pizza boxes and and uh, vape. <laughs> <laughs> they'll they'll try to figure out what the heck to do, and they'll come out and nominate someone. Remember, these are two political parties: the Democrats and Republicans, and they're under no obligation to abide by um, whatever vote is taken. They could meet, and the Republicans are pretty good at that. They'll meet in closed, behind closed doors and decide to nominate someone. It was the idea of transparency that gave way to the caucuses and eventually gave way to uh, primaries um, over the last 60-some-odd years that uh, gave us what we have today. But there's nothing to keep the Republicans from meeting behind closed doors the head of the Republican Party coming out and going, we've decided that, you know, Bobo Boo Boo is going to be our new, you know, nominee. And uh, and everybody will go, yay, Bobo. And they'll they'll uh, put him up for election in November, which is what uh, I think they may end up having to do.
0: Have we heard the last from Liz Cheney?
1: No, she's still alive, right? She, <laughs> she's <laughs> as, as she's around. she's. And the thing is, is you may you, that's an interesting name to bring up because she voted 95% of the time with Donald Trump. And if at some point in time, the Republicans understand that she could really whoop the Democrats, the Democrats are in for a world of hurt because she has tremendous crossover appeal. Right now, she couldn't get the nomination, but she would win a general election. And the Democrats uh, are infamous for snatching defeat out of the jaws of victory. And if she were on the uh, the ballot, I think the Democrats would have huge problems.
0: Brian J. Karam with us, journalist, author, White House correspondent for Playboy, political analyst for CNN. Always fun, Brian. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too, brother. Stay out of the weather. A quick break here. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Great article in are uh, on the Global News website from David Aiken. in Generation Z, a new kind of voter emerges, focused more on issues and less on parties. To talk more about all of this, David Aiken, chief political correspondent for Global News and here now. David, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Doing very well, Scott. You? So far, so good, David. This is a fascinating look at uh, how the, the country is changing and the demographics are changing and such. Why? How are they different Is Generation Z? Who are people, by the way, uh, in or under the age of 30? How, how do they vote differently than, say, their parents or grandparents?
6: So they vote. Uh, and this is taking this from a whole bunch of different studies, pollsters, demographers and and a lot of interviews I did uh, over the last couple of weeks with some young people uh, in and around Ottawa is. They're concerned about certain aspects of the world. Um, A common denominator going back probably five or six years is climate change. A lot of young people uh, seized with a more urgent worry about climate change than perhaps people who are boomers. So they might have come to start engaged and learn about politics uh, through that lens. What are we doing about climate change? Who can do something about it? And then, more recently, um, especially for those who, say, are about to graduate or just got married, they're, again, under 30, housing. Housing affordability is, uh just rocketed right to the top of the charts among this group. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and so when they engage with politics, do they say, well, I, I'm a liberal. Uh, no, I'm a conservative. No, I'm a New Democrat. They don't really mm-hmm. do that. They say, okay, which one of you politicians... Is going to do a good job on housing. and oh, by the way, I'm also interested in climate change. So they're more interested in in moving their vote around the political spectrum based on, again, who is going to worry do most about uh, the the issue why I'm interested in. And I'll use one case in point right now. I started following the Pierre Polyev leadership race when he was running, you know, a couple of years ago. And of course, a conservative leader. And now and and now he's 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 running around the country giving rallies. He gave one yesterday in the, in the, in B.C. And there is absolutely a significantly younger component to the, the typical demographic that shows up at his rally. Um, and what if you've watched anything that he's done over the last couple of years? housing guy doesn't shut up about it. He may not have all the answers on housing and you know a lot of experts have chipped in saying oh come on that's simplistic and nonsense but he he's constantly talking about it and as a result a lot of relatively young people under 30 are giving an eye to the conservatives because they see a leader who seems to be fairly obsessed with the issue. So that's really that I think is the big difference. Gen Z voters are really ready to put their vote anywhere to the politician they most associate with, with being doing work on the issue they think is most important.
0: Voting on the issue of uh, that matters to them as opposed to voting for the party, is that not a good thing? Many will say, well, politics used to be that way
6: because we don't necessarily belong to one team of the either or one of the it other. Is. There's a real interesting generational sort of move about that. There's a lot of people... Um, you know, it might be th- people who are in Canada for, say, three or four generations, particularly in in Alberta, in rural parts of 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 East, say, Eastern Ontario, outside Ottawa, where you get a lot of people is, I grew up a Tory, and by goodness, I'm always going to be a Tory. My dad's a Tory, my dad before him, or on the same side of things. You'll find, uh, uh, particularly in the GTA, where liberals still have a lot of support, is people look back two or three generations. I came to Canada when Pierre Trudeau was the prime minister, and we're sticking with the Liberal Party. So you can get some loyalty sort of built on that. That people uh, and there's other people who just, you know, they come through university and they say, well, I'm I'm a social Democrat. I'm going to vote for the NDP. So there are still people who see themselves identified with a party. But uh, Gen Z, more free agents involved there. Now, it is true that Gen Generation Z voters, younger votes, you know, Sort of the default vote is towards a more progressive party, and so that would be the Democrats in the United States, and would be the NDP in Canada, not the Liberals. In fact, the, 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 the Justin Trudeau Liberals, they're the least favored uh, party among Generation Z. The New Democrats, if, if if only people under 30 voted in the next election, Jugmeet Singh would be prime minister with a majority government. About 40% of those under 30, uh, at this point in time, prefer the NDP. But the Conservatives have a fairly strong a bit of support under 30 as well at about 30% of voters. Liberals are down around 20%. So, uh, so that's where you know, I think a younger voter would tend to skew more progressive. But again, it's not a given. And it really depends on the issue that that Generation Z voter says most important to me is, you know, fill in the blank, and that's where you might find them. And right now, again, I go back to housing and housing affordability. It's obviously the issue of our time for particularly young people. And the flip side is for people over 60, housing's not that important. Why? They probably have a house. They probably paid off their mortgage. It's their major asset. For them, it might be some other issues. Crime, for instance. Um, crime, not an issue for those under 30. Right. For those over 60, particularly some conservative boomers, you know, the woke agenda You know, that uh, political correctness for those under 30, they're like, "Will you boomers shut up about that. It's like, who cares? Please find me a place to live. So some real differences on the generations that I think are going to inform our politics. And if you want to get elected, well, here's one thing. Young people tend not to vote at the same rate as older people. hmm. Boomers vote Uh, in the last election. Sixty two percent of those. Uh, So the overall voter rate was 62%, but just 40% of people under 30 voted in our last federal election. So young people, they're, they're changing politics. They come at it differently, but they won't really show their clout until more of them show up at the ballot box.
0: It seems that politics nowadays, one extreme order, the other. Do you think this will uh, gravitate, people will gravitate towards the center because you're talking about a, a demographic that's conscious of of social issues such as climate change, but they also want housing <coughs> built. And a lot of the times,
6: those two didn't fit in the same group. That's true enough. Um, there hasn't been a lot of research on this one question in Canada, there has in the United States. And that is, okay, so if housing or climate change Um, or any other issue is important to you, what are the solutions? And the research I've seen uh, in the states by pollsters in the states is younger voters, the Generation Z voter, would be much more likely to agree with or consider what we might call radical solutions. Um, Radical in this sense. And again, I'll I'll use the U.S. context. So racism uh, racism is a much bigger problem in the United States than it is in Canada. We do have problems, obviously, with racism. And there it's really racism involving black people um the 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 heritage of uh, the slave trade three hundred years ago. young people, generation Z in the United States say, yeah, the federal government absolutely should be paying money to the survivors of slave families. And that's really unique among that generation. And that would be, quote characterized as a as a radical solution uh, or a radical reparation for that particular problem. I just use that as an example, but there there are others in in, again, this is u s. Reachers that says, Younger people, they've got their issue set, and they are much more likely to be considering what we might call radical solutions uh, to a particular problem. We'll see if that manifests itself in, in Canada at this point in time. I mean, obviously, there are some differences between New Democrats, Conservatives, and Liberals, but one could argue there's not as radical differences, as you go across our particular spectrum, and the presence of a Generation Z voter May force uh, some party to say, "Okay, let's let's really turn things upside down and, you know, make housing free or or we'll we'll here's Hmm. here's your first 10,000 bucks for your for your down payment. I don't know that sort of thing. But um, that's where Generation Z may drive things is to say um, we want change. We want it quick and we're ready and prepared uh, to take radical steps to achieve our ends. All
0: right, David Aiken with us, Chief Political Correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. And his latest in Generation Z, a new kind of voter emerges focused more on issues, less on parties. David, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. No problem. Cheers. All right, we talk about it every year, and it's almost time. Hamilton's iconic Soup Fest warming up. 22nd year. Uh, The annual fundraiser for Living Rock Youth Center is scheduled to take place at the Convention Center in the Hammer, February 27th. And to talk more about all of this, Karen Craig, Living Rock Ministries, and here now. Karen, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well.
5: Oh, it's awesome. I'm so excited to come on. I think this is the first time really getting out there and letting people know, so it's wonderful. So
0: let's talk about this. Uh, First of all, tell everybody who may not know what Living Rock is.
5: Living Rock is this incredible center downtown Hamilton and um we love serving you 13 to 25. We've got we're open right from eight a.m. in the morning with breakfast, our youth resource center, and uh, leading right up to dinner programs. So they're here till eight o'clock at night. We've got some winter warm up funding from the city, which we're really excited about, which allowed us to open up longer. So we're seven days a week. Uh Saturday, Sunday is um they come in noon till uh, 1, sorry, 1 to 8, and and then uh, Monday to Friday we're open 8 to 8. So it's really exciting getting youth out of the cold uh, through winter warm-up when it's um, a cold alert. We also have served youth a little older, up to 29, um, in our youth resource center, but we're getting them, you know, showers and warm-up and food and Wi-Fi and um, whatever, you know, the things that they need. Of course, our food bank is hopping as well from one to six uh tuesday thursday and saturday so we're having lineups of young people accessing uh food and as well as um thrifting so getting clothing and stuff as well and they really love that too so it's been very busy but very exciting here at the rock and um yeah we are excited to be moving forward with soup fest. This is our biggest fundraiser and it's a really great event
0: so if uh tell everybody who may not have heard of soup fest what it is
5: well, it's fantastic. You come into the Hamilton Convention Center by Carmen's at One Summer's Lane, right downtown. Of course, we want to be right downtown, 1130 to 7 um, on Tuesday, February 27th. And you're going to see these amazing restaurants that are going to be competing for your vote related to Best Soup, Most Creative Soup, best Display, Smart, smart Heart Smart. And um, there's also a panel of judges that will be... Um, also picking a blind taste test of, of so there's a special panel of people that um will be they their blind taste test of the soup. So that happens as well. So that's their choice awards. But um they love the vote. I mean the restaurants are excited to be there and get your vote. It has meant a lot to some Hamilton restaurants. So it really is important to get in there and honor our restaurants. We've got eleven right now apothecary, kitchen, baki, Bistro tied to McMaster University, Born Raised, Green Machine Food Truck, Hamilton Convention Center by Carmen's has their own soup, Um, Kelsey's Original Roadhouse, Royal Botanical Gardens, Mai Tai, and Stuffed and Thirsty Cactus. It's been a long time participant. So yes, we're really excited to have all these restaurants um, coming in, as well as our youth are going to be making... We have an incredible cook here, Jackie, and they're going to be making a special soup um, for an extra donation, too. So the youth here at Living Rock are involved in our cooking program, our Rock Resources, which is our work crews, um, as well as our Tri-Rock program, our full-time employment program. We've got 15 youth in Tri-Rock right now that are eight weeks here and then eight weeks with a community employer. But there is still room to register. So if you're a restaurant or you know a restaurant that really needs to get in to Fest tell them you need to be in soup <laughs> and <laughs> everything's online so they can come to livingrock.ca and learn about sponsorship um, restaurant information and tickets it's a great price we've kept the price like we've kept the price the same so it's twenty dollars and you get four bowls of soup with that so it's a really good deal some people a woman just said to me the other day you get actually soup with your ticket and I said, yes, it's just, oh, I didn't realize that. I've heard about you forever and haven't gone. And I'm like, yes, you've got to come this year for sure. So, yeah.
0: And we certainly know what Hamilton's, uh, you know, restaurant scene has turned into over the last few years. And the restaurants really get into this. And what's cool is you can get to, uh, you know, sample a lot of different places in a short period of time.
5: Oh, and they put toppings on it. Like they really, really work hard to get. You know, work really hard. They get to really celebrate their skills and um and really share. And everyone, well, you know, Scott. I mean, you've you've been down there. <laughs> you taste all the soups. You know what I'm talking about.
0: Yeah. As soon as you walk anywhere close to the convention center, you can smell it. It's <laughs> it's just amazing. Karen Craig with us, Living Rock Ministries this year's edition of Soup Fest, uh, Soup Fest February twenty Seventh at the Hamilton Convention Center by Carmen's. And, of course, always looking for more restaurants who want to jump on board. Yeah, and great sponsors,
5: uh, too, like Cooper Law. They are standing with us a long, long time. We've got a whole list of sponsors on our website, so go check it out.
0: All right, Karen, good luck this year.
5: Yes, yeah, thank you so much. Look forward to seeing Car- you there. Okay, take care. Karen
0: Craig, Living Rock Ministries Soup Fest, coming up this February 27th. <laughs>
5: When there's an issue, Scott
0: is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's Talk 900 CXM1. Over the weekend, uh, a significant uh, land return to uh, none of it. And we, we really didn't talk a lot about this prior to. Let's bring in Liam Midzane-Gobin, settler, scholar, assistant professor of political science, Brock University, and here now. Liam, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, Scott. I am. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. So what exactly did happen here? I mean, it, it was it sort of came and went and there wasn't a lot of preamble to this or, or was there?
7: So there were generations of preamble in some respects, but there wasn't a lot of media attention um, because it's been going on for so long. So um, one of the. Things so why is this? It, so why,
0: why is this happening now? Why did it happen this weekend?
7: So it happened this weekend because this is when the federal government and the territorial government came to an agreement. So it's been about uh, 20 years of negotiations from the time that Nunavut became a a territory to now. It's taken about that long to um, ultimately come to this kind of a devolution agreement where Nunavut gets uh, a series of new powers that that currently and until April rest with the federal government. Um, And so it was in 2008 that they signed a sort of intention to negotiate this. Um, And so it stretches like the active negotiations go back to then. But this has always been one of the hopes since the 1970s of a lot of the Inuit elders, that they would eventually have the same kinds of powers that you start to see in this agreement. And talk a bit more, expand on those new powers. Sure. So right now... um, we talk about territories as though they're not that much different than provinces. And in some respects, that's true. They have responsibility over healthcare. They have responsibility over education. Uh, but what territories don't have is authority over mineral and water and land and resource rights. And well, they do now, but before Nunavut didn't have those. And Nunavut mm-hmm. also didn't have um the right to actually gain the royalties from development on their lands, on a lot of the lands. Um, None a bit unique from the other two territories for a number of reasons, but um, the territorial government didn't have that, that right. And this agreement um, hands over those responsibilities for resource decisions, uh, for a lot of infrastructure decisions, and hands the territory a lot more power. And it hands them also, in alongside with that power, they start to get access to the uh, resource royalties and the other kinds of payments. And so they can actually fund a lot more of the services that they're required to provide um, quite a bit more easily without having to go back to Ottawa all the time. How significant is this? This is a massive deal for the territory. Um, It it is the final territory to uh, come to the sort of an agreement. So it means that Um, on a sort of government-to-government level, it puts Nunavut on par with the other territories and much closer to that provincial status. When you start to look at Inuit um, themselves uh, in Nunavut, which are different than the Nunavut territorial government, um, but when you start to look at, at Inuit and start to listen to what they're saying, Inuit and Nunavut are talking about this as one of the kind of combinations of self-determination this is an opportunity for them to have all the same kinds of decision-making responsibilities that they've sought for generations Uh, and it's also a way for them to start to take a bit more control over um, different aspects of their lives which differs from the way that like a lot of the territory was settled by just forced relocations because canada and the united states wanted um Canadian citizens in different pockets of the Arctic to kind of guard against uh, threats coming from, uh, into the Arctic. And so the current premier actually is from one of those communities, crease forward, that was set up directly through these forced relocations. And that kind of a direct control from Ottawa is mm. just not possible now under this kind of agreement. And so for Inuit specifically, it's a way of, of reclaiming some of that self-determination that they've really been pushing for and negotiating for for generations. Liam, how does this change
0: the discussion around natural resources, developing natural resources, mining, that sort of thing?
7: It means that decisions are going to be made in Iqaluit and not necessarily in Ottawa now. Um, Hmm. Right now, Iqaluit and the territorial government doesn't have full control. Um, As of April, when this agreement starts to, to really come into place, and 2027 is when it will fully come into place, then you will start to see um, the territorial government in Iqaluit and some of the uh, Inuit land claims corporations be able to share full decision-making within Nunavut itself. Uh, And so that is going to mean that they're going to have potentially different purposes and requirements for projects. It's going to mean that they're going to have their own assessment systems and assessment um, criteria. Um, It's going to mean that Inuit start to have more control over those systems mm. uh, than than they currently do. Uh,
0: will that create conflict moving forward with the government of Canada? Uh, what if they decide to do something different than what the government of the day wants?
7: Then they'll be like any other jurisdiction um, that might yeah. kind of disagree with Ottawa, but Ottawa only has certain levers. Um, one of the things that might help kind of alleviate any conflict is that Nunavut has historically been really underfunded for its infrastructure. And so um, there's going to be a certain amount of pressure on the government to continue development projects insofar as those are what are going to bring in a lot of revenue for the territory to be able to fund the infrastructure that it needs. And so it seems as though though there's agreement between at least um, Justin Trudeau and the current uh, Nunavut government. And uh, there's a recognition of this being important for keeping some of the wealth that Nunavut holds um, and being able to reinvest it in Nunavut itself on their own terms. And so I don't think that they're setting out to to, um, come to come to loggerheads or create disagreements, um, in part because Inuit and Nunavut especially have always been Uh, One of the first peoples that have been most interested in creating bilateral relationships uh, on a kind of government to government level within the constitutional framework. And so there has always been a real emphasis on finding ways to work together uh, that has led to things like the creation of Nunavut in the first place and this devolution agreement. Liam Midzane-Gobin with a settler scholar, assistant
0: professor of political science, Brock University. Liam, as always, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. We certainly know of the ongoing war, uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, and now uh, with so many other conflicts or other uh, world events going on. Um, this, you know, perhaps not as top of mind as it once was. Now the mayor of Kiev is worried that measures taken to defend his nation in the ongoing fight against Russian invasion is transforming Ukraine into an autocracy. Arl Brown with us, professor, international relations, senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. And here now, Arl, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. Are you surprised to hear this from the mayor of Kiev? What are his concerns?
8: I'm not entirely surprised Uh, we are all familiar with the cliché that uh, a victory has a thousand fathers, defeat uh, dot dot. Uh, Hmm. It's not that Ukraine has been defeated, but the victories that they were enjoying in the fall of uh, 2022 have not been built on because they have not received the equipment that they had hoped for. Uh, It has been uh, a kind of trickle lately. The approval of funds uh, is uh, held up in the U.S. Congress. Germany has been slow in delivering uh, both equipment as well as money, so they need to step up. So there are all sorts of concerns. You are going to have more friction. And this is a very difficult situation where Ukraine has uh, sustained very significant losses. And lastly, we should also know that uh, the mayor of Kiev, Kiev, uh, had a pitch call, a former heavyweight boxing champion of the world, mm-hmm. and President Zelensky have been political rivals for quite some time now. So some of the concern is a reflection that democracy is alive and well in uh, Ukraine that you can't criticize freely. But the other element does involve personal rivalry. It does involve the stress of conflict and uh, inadequate uh, health. So there is frustration.
0: Is this positive? Does this help? Is, does this not only create uh, divisiveness?
8: I don't think it's particularly positive because the interviews that uh, Vitalik Klitschko gave were to outside papers, and one of the first rules in any conflict is that you don't go outside to make your case, to criticize the, the government. Klitschko was uh, fairly careful to say, he was not asking for the ouster of Zelensky, and he was not calling for uh, elections right now, because it would be impossible to hold elections under the current circumstances with so many millions of people uh, who have been made refugees. Uh, but he did address uh, some authoritarian tendencies, and perhaps there were some, because uh, it is uh, a difficult situation. And uh, it would not be harmful for Zelensky to look into some of these measures, whether they affect the press or whether it's a selection of local officials. But airing these grievances outside uh, is not uh, very likely helpful.
0: Uh, Do others share the same concerns as the mayor?
8: Yes. I mean, uh, uh, when things are not going... Exactly as expected, when Zelensky cannot deliver the foreign aid that he had hoped for, and is not as effective as he had been in the past, his return from some trips abroad uh, empty empty-handed, so uh, that would create frustration, would increase uh, uh, criticism, uh, and and uh, uh, these are a reflection of stresses that. Uh, are natural in any conflict that is prolonged. we are moving on to two years now of, mm. this, con- of this conflict it is winter it is a very difficult period for ukrainian uh, forces they are under relentless attack from russia and russia has been getting help from iran they've been getting help from north uh, north korea and vladimir putin doesn't particularly care about the losses of the lives of russian soldiers
0: what else can Zelensky do? I mean, is it him? Is it, Or, I mean, is are there alternatives? Are there other options that are better?
8: I wouldn't think so. He has, you know, a remarkable historical figure, but no one is perfect. So I'm sure he has made some, some mistakes. But you always look at the entire package. And overall, I do not think there's any other leader in Ukraine at the moment who would have both the domestic or the international stature. It still is the most popular leader within Ukraine. But I think uh, that the West should pay heed to this, because at one level, it's perfectly healthy that in a democracy, you would have these kinds of discussions, that there would be an airing of agreements. There can always be improvement. But it is also a reflection of the inadequate help that Ukraine has been given. And it's an enormous amount at stake, because this is a conflict about democracy as well. This is something that's where you have a threat against uh, the international system, against international law. This is uh, the same kind of thing where you have Iran and Hamas uh, attacking uh, a democracy. So it is part of an assault on the democratic world. And uh, helping Ukraine is not an act of charity. Helping Ukraine is something that ought to be part of enlightened self-interest among the Western countries. And we have been rather slow, and uh, we are tied up with our own domestic problems, which is at one level is understandable, but at the same time, we need to be able to deal both with domestic problems and realize that we live in a globalized system, but it matters what happens in Ukraine, and it matters profoundly to us much more than we sometimes assume. Uh,
0: those that may be critical of Zelensky, does that necessarily mean they might be somewhat softer supportive of Russia?
8: Not certainly not in the case of Vitaly Klitschko. He had yeah. been very firm in his uh, defiance as well as condemnation of uh, Russia. So this is not a division between those who uh, would want to take a tough line with Russia and uh, insist on restoring sovereignty in Ukraine, but rather it is a dispute among uh, individuals who share the largest strategic goal, but they differ in terms of implementation and perhaps in terms of Personal ambition as well.
0: It sounds, Arl like things have not been going well for Ukraine of late. Is that fair?
8: I wouldn't be too pessimistic, but uh, there are reasons to be concerned. Ukraine is running short of ammunition. They have taken significant losses. They are under relentless pressure from a ruthless leader in Russia. So we better step up uh, because it could turn worse. But there are still many opportunities for Ukraine to turn, turn this around. Russia does not have an infinite supply either of, uh, of uh, soldiers or weapons, despite the, the importation of large quantities of weapons from Iran and from uh, North Korea and help, uh, from China.
0: And despite what Ukraine may be going through or, or, or the troubles and challenges now, Russia hasn't won yet.
8: Well, this is, again, where we need to have this perspective, that when we look at the beginning of this conflict, the expectation was that Russia was just going to roll over Ukraine, that within a couple of days they would be in Kiev, that uh, Ukraine would be destroyed. The advice was uh, for Zelensky to flee. And so uh, Ukraine has been able to take back at least half of what Russia conquered in 2022. They have been able to hold the line. So many ways, it has been a remarkable performance, but far from perfect, and they are having uh, difficulty now because uh, they have reduced supplies of ammunition. In some cases, they have uh, only something like 2,000 shells that they can fire a day when they need to fire the double double number of that to uh, make sure that the Russians don't succeed in it. They're prodding attacks, but Russia has not made that much progress. So, whatever Russia attacked, they have taken over very little territory in the cost of horrendous losses, uh, both in terms of uh, soldiers and of equipment. So, I think we should not overestimate Russia, but at the same time, we have to look at the reality that, that this conflict uh, is going on and um, Ukraine. Uh, 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 is uh, uh, standing up, but uh, uh, we uh, uh, need to make this. Uh, we have to understand that we have a very large stake in this. We're not bystanders. We, we cannot afford to get away uh, from Ukraine because a uh, Ukraine that would be defeated would not be the last of Russia's ambitions it would be mm. the beginning.
0: R.L. Brown with us, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto. R.L., always fascinating. Thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you. Scott Radley's coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, great. Yeah. No,
9: no, I mean, other so, than the suffering through the bills yesterday, but yeah. So I, that's where we're going.
0: So oh, what are okay. your thoughts? Because, you know, I look back and I'm thinking, well, if you made a couple of those passes
9: and then, of course, the field goal, this could be a whole different scenario. I have, I concluded this long before yesterday. Yesterday was merely the exclamation mark on my belief on this. The Mm -hmm. Buffalo Bills exist solely for the purpose of tormenting and torturing their fans. I thought that was the Maple Leafs. Well, them too. And like, okay, so here's the thing. If you are a Southern Ontario sports fan, Scott, consider this. You could be a fan of the Buffalo Bills, the Toronto Maple Leafs, the Toronto Blue Jays, and the Hamilton Tiger Cats. You need therapy, deep,
3: deep <laughs> therapy.
9: Every one of those teams specializes in finding ways to rip your heart out, light it on fire, and stomp on it. But none, none like the Buffalo Bills. I mean, this is think about it wide, right now wide, right two. uh, the music city miracle 13 seconds. Um, I'm forgetting a whole bunch of them. It's like no other team has this many, just names of disastrous games, like two word names for disastrous games.
0: I just thought they'd pull it out. It's like, well, this is a, this isn't going to end this way. And sure enough,
5: it did.
9: Like I, I, and then the field goal was just the, oh my God. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. So he, the reality is, and this is lost in all of this and it's going to be lost. And you know, the narratives, a narrative gets formed very quickly as it already has. It's never going to change. The reality is. It was unfortunate for the Bills that their defense was so badly beat up this year that they were down to like third string guys at four or five positions on defense. And, you know, Kansas City is not the team they were, but they're still a pretty good team. And if you're a Bills fan, you're sitting here thinking, okay, we finally get what we want. And it's when we're playing our junior varsity squad on defense. Like, could we not once just have things break our way. And, you know, I just, I, I, I wonder sometimes if franchises can be cursed and I don't really believe it. And then every once in a while I go, but how is it not? How, I mean, if you're a Bills fan, how do you not feel like you are cursed every time someone dangles a little bobble in front of you and gives you a scintilla of hope? they then punch you in the face instead.
0: That's Again, what it is. I, I, the parallels with the Leafs, uh, there you go. I mean, it's yeah, the well, same and thing.
9: The Leafs, the thing The thing is, uh, the, you know, amazingly time does pass and we don't forget it as viscerally. The Leafs, look, the Leafs disappointment is coming. Make no mistake. You know, we're, we should start <laughs> p- bracing now. If you're a prepper, start prepping for what's coming because that's your Kleenex. That is happening, Scott. There is absolutely no question that that is going to happen. The Leafs will crush it their fans' spirit in three months or four months or whatever it is. Well, that, we know that, and the Jays will do the same. And I hate to say it, but the Cats, based on what's been going on, it has been this is this year, I believe, is going to be their 25th anniversary season of their last Grey Cup in an eight, some or nine, sometimes eight-team league. I mean, yeah. if you're if you're what do you call those people who do insurance? um... Uh, adjuster. Uh, well, an adjuster are the people who study yeah. the numbers. Um, yeah, so what's the, um uh, uh, you know what I mean? People know yeah. what I mean, but if yeah. you're one of them, you could not possibly look at the Ticats and go, there's a statistical explanation for how in a nine team league, you can't win once in 25 years, but there you are. <laughs> And you can't tell it's Monday. All right. Thank you, Scott. Have a great one tonight. Thank you. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the
0: Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one via Frank and email. Stop throwing stones. Till the window is broken. Keep right except to pass.